understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Stranded Phase Podcast. I'm your host, your girl, Jessica Hurley, and we are back for something a little different. This is something we like to call a feature episode. This was, this is when I am on someone else's podcast. And to be real with you, I get asked to be on a lot of podcasts, but I only choose to feature the ones that I feel like aren't redundant and you guys really need to hear. And this feature episode was an episode I was featured on a podcast called Broken Into Beautiful. And it's a podcast with Stephanie Cooper, whose whole entire goal is to allow women a chance to tell their stories about their broken into beautiful moment. And of course, I took that opportunity to tell the story about how in 2017, I had a micro preemie by accident, obviously. My son Cameron was born a pound, 15 ounces. But the coolest part about this story was Stephanie actually gave me a chance to tell the part that I have not told yet, which is how the actual birth of my son, which truly activated my purpose, but the actual birth wasn't the life-changing moment. The life-changing moment for me was actually about a month after. That was when the realest part of the shift happened, when all these things simultaneously ran together in one day in particular that changed my life forever. I got a chance to tell the story about how a month after his birth, I was packing a bag to go stay with him during the preparation of Hurricane Irma, which was a, a Category 5 that was going to hit Tampa directly. And I was going to stay with him because there was a lot of craziness going on around um, that he could possibly be flown by helicopter because he was still on a respirator. And they were saying that the hospital was still the safest place to stay because of the generator and the hurricane force windows. So I was packing a bag to stay and ended up falling super ill, uh, calling my doctor, going in and finding out that I myself had an infection and no one could, the hurricane was hitting that night. No one could get to me. And two nights later, I'm in the hospital by myself, strapped to the bed when, and Chris can't get to me. No one can come see me because the hurricane's hitting that night. And I get a phone call that in the midst of all this, that Cameron is having an emergency blood transfusion because he himself is fighting an infection that he doesn't have enough white blood cells for. So I have a doctor screaming in my ear, just say yes or no. We need to give him a blood transfusion. And then when can you get here? And my nurse telling me, we cannot get you there. You're hooked up to... I was hooked up to all this stuff that they couldn't unhook me from because they were fighting the infection that had already made it into my blood. So, yeah. (laughs) And Chris couldn't be there. He was out of town. Like, no one could get to me and I couldn't get to my son. And I will never, ever, ever, that night is forever etched in my memory as a night that I truly had to let go, let God realize what faith actually meant and 
trust that I had the mental resilience to handle it all on my own. Because in that moment, there was nothing anyone could say. There was nothing anyone could do. I couldn't solicit anyone to help. I couldn't lean on anyone. I had to lean on my own reliance to mentally fight the fact that I couldn't control anything that was going on in my life right now. And that night alone shifted my life forever that which eventually led me to hit the ground running when my son came home three months later. So this story is one that I have never told. I mean, I have told the story of Cameron's birth multiple times, but this one in particular is deep. I don't know that I've ever gone this deep. So this, this episode is, it's a lengthy one, but it's all about my shift when I had the shift and how my life changed forever after this and how I understand that even though Cameron isn't my purpose, he was brought on this earth to activate the purpose that I had been avoiding for so long. So this episode is something that you definitely need to hear if you are in a stuck place, if you feel like circumstances controlling your life right now and you're not sure what the hell is going on, I need you to understand that this part has to happen. It has to happen. It obviously might not be like mine and it not it might not be like anyone else's, but I hope this episode brings you some insight into why sometimes things happen to us that are out of our control and what could possibly be next. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and I hope you have a wonderful week. I'm sending you so much love, freedom, peace, success, and abundance. Hey, my beautiful people and welcome back to Broken Into Beautiful. I hope you all are doing well. I am so, so excited because I have like, when all the women I've interviewed have been great, but this woman, if it was not for this woman, Broken Into Beautiful, it wouldn't be here right now. I have the honor of having Jessica Hurley on to tell her broken into beautiful story. So you don't know who that is? That's fine. You're going to learn. Jessica is my mentor. She challenges me. She, she is like the best. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's an entrepreneur. She also has a podcast called The Stranded Podcast, which is how I got started by listening to her. And if you have not heard it, you need to go and listen to it. And so we are going to hear Jessica's Broken Into Beautiful story. But that's right after my quote. You know, I got to do my quote. All right. So today I have found a little statement from Sweet Serendipity. And it states, sometimes deciding who you are is deciding who you will never be again. Ouch. That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, thank you, Stephanie, so much for having me. This is so good. I'm so excited for you. Just the extension, just the cocoon that you've broken free of amidst this podcast. I tell people, worst case scenario, you start a podcast and it just bombs. It totally bombs, which never happens. You get a full, th- you get a full therapy session by telling everything to everyone. It is complete therapy, but that's obviously not been your case, but it It's just so incredible watching you just kind of like come out of your shell and show up. And just one thing I noticed about you immediately that I love so much, it's going to come back tenfold for you is there's still so many people in the industry that have a scarcity mindset. We can't help it. I tell people all the time, I think women, we just have a competitive nature from decades and and, and eons ago when we had to compete to survive, You, you had to capture a man basically mm-hmm. for survival of the fittest to survive because we weren't working. We weren't allowed to work. We were just mothers. 
So we needed to compete. There was this constant competition, right? So I just feel like women, we still suffer from this scarcity mindset. And so to hear you get on your podcast and say that my podcast is a must listen, you're not even thinking of that taking away from your audience. You're not even thinking about that, you know, sending people away from you to someone else. Mm -hmm. And you're giving like, you know, honor and homage to someone else that you learn from that, that is just going to go so far for you because you, that just shows your audience. And I hope they hear this is that you, you have the full and utmost like desire to serve. Like that has always been who you are. Yes. And I have a quote that I started from just this podcast. And now I'm going to get a t-shirt with it. And it says, there's always room at the healing table. So there's enough room for all of us. The, welcome, the table welcome, welcome. Capacity. <laughs> so I'm willing to share and show others. And yeah. <laughs> Come on in. Mm-hmm. Come on in. <laughs> well, you okay with me telling my story? Yes, you can go right ahead. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me again. While broken into beautiful means so many things to so many people, I can think of quite a few different broken into beautiful stories. I think the one that would probably be the one that your listeners need to hear. And I think the most, like the ultimate life-changing moment for me was in 2017. And so I have to start this by saying that like most people, by 17, I was convinced that I needed to go to college. And that the only way out was, I grew up in a small town, met my mentor when I was 14 years old. She ended up becoming more of a big sister to me. I moved in with her when I was 17 years old. Long story there. My parents didn't want me to go to college. They thought that I had a great job and I just needed to stay there and retire. And only thing I knew that I just knew one thing. Well, I was like, I want more. Like, I don't want to live in this town. I don't want to just like, work my way up and make, I'm saying it now to make $35,000 a year, but you know, I didn't know it then, but I was like, I don't want to just make this mediocre salary. I don't want to just live. And like, you know, it, I lived in a city where everybody knew everybody. They had knew you, knew you from the time you were five to the time you were 45 and they knew your kids. And I get the community in that, but I was like, I want more. I don't know how to get it, but I want more. Mm-hmm. And um, I told my parents that I wanted to go to away to college and they were like, you're running from your problems. So uh, that's a no. And you need to keep your job because I somehow had the fortunate opportunity. I started working for the county government when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, you stay there for 30 years. You can retire by 40. Like, it'll be the best thing ever. Nobody gets opportunities like that. It's so hard to work for the county. They want to hire you full time. Why would you leave? And um, I just knew. I just knew. I had too much mess there, too much brokenness, too many like, you know, bad groups of friends, bad relationships. And I did, in a sense, I did want to run away, but I was like, just please get me away from here. And so when I was 17, I told my boss at the time and she was like, your parents don't want you to go to college. And I was like, no. And she was like, oh, you need to move in with me. That's the craziest shit I've ever heard. So I ended up moving in with her and she set me straight. Like I've never in my life been given that those level of expectations. And so I ended up living by living under her. She just had a different mentality. She was 28 years old. She had a four bedroom house to herself. She had a a great job. She was running a whole sector of the county government. You know, she didn't have any kids. She had a boyfriend and she just kind of gave me that vision of like, you know, you want to create a family, you want to get a college degree, then you want to get a master's, then you want to secure your job in some corporation or doing what you love, make enough money so that you can survive and be independent. And if you choose to, you know, have a husband, you can do that too she really like instilled that in me. And so 
I end up going to college when I'm 19 years old, um, moving away about four hours away to go to college. After living with her for two and a half years, I got my, what do you call that, your A degree, and moved away to Florida State and Tallahassee to go to college by myself. And up until like that entire, my entire college career, I knew one thing. I was like, I just want to do what my mentor did for me. Like, I want to work with kids. I want to work at like um, nonprofits, like county government, like rec centers. So basically what it was that I grew up in was like a rec center that ended up coming, becoming my boss. I ended up working there. So I just said, I just want to go to college and learn how to do this anywhere. I want to go work at rec centers or nonprofits and work with kids and give them the solid advice and opportunities that she gave me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I did do that. I did. And I honestly thought that that was it. And after college, the only goals I had, literally, this was the only goals I had. I said, okay, so I'm graduating. I want to get a job for $15, $16 an hour. Eventually, I want to work my way up to $50,000 a year. That sounds great. I want to be a director. And then I want to get married, have a nice house and have children and maybe travel sometimes. That was it. That was it. Then that was 21. So then around 24, I said, okay, I should probably get a master's degree because I see they're only giving people promotions that have master's degrees. So I want to get a master's degree. So I added that to my repertoire and that was it. And then, so I got my master's degree between 24 and 27. And I was 25 when I met my fiance, met my fiance, we're in a relationship for three years. Now he's opening my horizons. At this time, he's a full-time entrepreneur. I'm working my corporate job, which I love, by the way, very rewarding. I was working for a nonprofit with at-risk kids. I couldn't have been doing anything more aligned with what I had done, like who I was and what I had done. And I wake up one day at 27 and I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and my fiance is like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, seems like something's wrong. And I was like, I, I don't know. Now, mind you, I had known this feeling for a while. It just took a really long time to acknowledge it. Hmm. But the feeling was like, is this it? Like, this is it? Like, I'm, okay, maybe we have some kids, maybe we get married. But this is it? Like, I don't really feel super fulfilled. Like, it's great. Life's great. I'm grateful. You know, I did everything. I'm not even 30 yet. I have a, I was making $62,000 a year. I had a job that like felt very rewarding. I had a man, we were traveling, you know, when we wanted to, when I could take a week off or something. And I was just like, I kept catching myself, like driving to work, like, is this it? And I had felt the feeling for a while, but it took a little bit to acknowledge it because I kept trying to fill the void with other things. So I remember going to my job and asking them for a raise. And I thought that would fix it like a year before that. And then there was a period where we traveled a lot. And I said, okay, maybe if we travel. Then there was a period where I was like, well, maybe it's my relationship. Maybe this is just like too good. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm supposed to have something that's a little more combative or, you know, like you just start questioning everything. Yeah. And I just talked about this in my podcast, but you, you got to be a different level of insane to not wake up and have this moment as a woman. You have to. And it's because we've been taught our whole lives to live for other people. And so when you wake up and have that feeling, we just by nature start trying to fill it with something. We think that like, there's just one thing that we've been off about and we need to fix it. So maybe I need to get sexy again. Maybe I need to get more fit. Maybe I need to make more money at my job. Maybe I need to, oh, I should buy a new car. Like I, I feel kind of crappy in that car. Like, you know, maybe I should go back to school and get my master's degree. I think that'll make me happy. That'll make me feel fulfilled. What you're searching for is purpose. 
-hmm. You're searching for purpose. And it will, I had a, um, a hypnotist tell me this once and I'll never forget it. She said, the body will tell you something before your mouth does. Wow. And I just remember always feeling like, just feeling this, like, it was almost like this onset of just sadness or emptiness. And I was just like, what, what is this? Like, I have the most rewarding job ever. What is this? And when you find yourself getting to that point where you're complaining a lot, where you're going out with your friends and then you're complaining a lot. And then, you know, like nothing can fill that void. You're searching for purpose. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we, we teeter this line all the time of like, I have this feeling, but what if I'm just ungrateful? What if I'm, maybe I just need to be more grateful for what I have. Mm. You know, like what if I feel this feeling, but I'm just like, maybe I have too much of a princess dream in my head and I need to get it out of me. And I need to just be more grateful for what I already have. But you have that feeling because your car and your man and your children and your friends are not your purpose. They're not. They're not your purpose. They're not. And for the moms that want to cuss me out after listening to this, I apologize, but your children are not your purpose. If you put your purpose in them, you will be sadly disappointed time and time and time and time again. And then you'll be even more disappointed when they leave. And, and they no longer are reliant on you. So your children are not your purpose. There is something that you were put on this earth to do, a divine assignment, a mission, something that you were put on this earth to fulfill. And that soul-wrenching emptiness is from you not fulfilling your mission. Now you've done everything for everyone to make everyone happy, to fulfill all of everyone's dreams for you. You went to college, you got the job, you have stable income, you can take care of yourself, you're independent, you got a man, you got a kid. Da, 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 you have yet to do anything fulfilling for you. Yeah. Nothing. And so on this journey at this time, I'm, I've also started seeking God heavily, starting to understand my relationship with God, starting to really like become like a devout Christian. But I've got a lot of questions because I wasn't raised in the church. So thank God I had a spiritual mentor. She was, at, she was really helping me ask the dumb questions I say all the time. I was asking dumb questions. Like, so if, uh, why would God let that happen? Like, <laughs> I don't understand. If you guys say he is who he says he is, I don't understand. And in 2017, I got, now remember, I'm searching for purpose. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say whether I did or did not, but I did this to fill a void, but I did end up getting pregnant. So I get pregnant. Mm -hmm. 2017, I get pregnant, right? I tell people all the time, what do you do when you're consistent at your job and you're consistent with your friends and your life is great and everything? What do you go do? You go get pregnant. That's what you do. You screw it all up. So <laughs> I got pregnant in 27, the top of 2017, February 2017 is when we found out we, I was pregnant and we weren't engaged yet or anything. We had just been together three years. We knew we were going to marry each other, but we were just still in our like growing phases and I get pregnant and I'm still on my journey with God. So I will never forget this. I, cause I know it has everything to do with what happened after that. So my spiritual mentor, I'm in Washington DC for an event. I'm pregnant. I don't remember when this was. It was like about three months into my pregnancy. I'm walking through the airport and, you know, she would always tell me like, if you're thinking about God and you're questioning him, just pray to him, start talking to him. And I called her while I was walking to the airport and I said, how come, no, how like, why do people always say like, God told me, I said, God doesn't talk to me. I don't hear him talk to me. And she said, if you feel like you can't hear him, you need to tell him that you need to say to him, God, I'm having a hard time. And I want you to reveal yourself to me. And I was like, okay. 
So I remember walking to this airport, I'm pregnant, like with a little baby bump and I'm walking to my flight and I'm like, all right, God, well, you know, like if this is real and all these blessings are true and, and, you know, I need to have this relationship with you and understand you deeper to have, you know, to just deeper understand myself. Like, I pray that you reveal yourself to me. And then that was it, you know, and I'm thinking like, I'm going to get on this flight and then something's going to happen. He's going to reveal. Like, I'm like, you don't even know what you just prayed for girl. Like, and that was it. And nothing happened. And then August, 2017 came, which was six months into my pregnancy. And I go to the doctor's office for his ultrasound. Chris, my fiance came to every ultrasound, only the ultrasounds. Then he would leave because I'm just going to sit in there and talk to the doctor about what I've been eating and everything else. He just wanted to see the baby and then he'd always go home. So we go to the ultrasound. They're looking at my belly particularly longer than they normally would. And Chris gives me a kiss and he leaves when we're done. I go sit in the room. I had went to work that morning. That's how I want you to know how normal this day was. I went to work that morning, left at 10 a.m. to come to this appointment. And I was like, hey, I'll be right back in 45 minutes. I'm just getting ultrasound. I'll be back. So they're like, hey, we just want you to sit in here like you normally do. It's like a 10 minute conversation with a doctor. If you've ever had a baby, I'm six and a half months pregnant. And I sit in there and I'm sitting in there for like 45 minutes. So I text my boss. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. But like they're saying I have to talk to the doctor and he's taking forever. She's like, oh, no problem. The door opens. Three doctors walk in and they close the door. And they're like pale in the face. Like it was like, I can laugh about it now, but it was like, they were like three FBI agents. Like they walked in and just like stared at me. And I was like, what's up? And they were like, so how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm, I feel good. They were, they were like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, well, we can't let you go home. We're actually going to admit you downstairs now. One, your blood pressure is so high. You could have a stroke. And they were like, you know, and you don't feel anything. And I was like, no, they were like, yep. Yeah. Okay. So your blood pressure is so high. You could have a stroke. So even if you weren't pregnant, we wouldn't let you go home. So that's one, two, there's something internal going on that we're not understanding quite yet because your baby hasn't grown in four weeks. He's the same size he was four weeks ago. And I was like, and they were like, that makes him like a pound and a half under where he's supposed to be. And so if he continues to not grow, we're gonna have a very big problem. And I was like, okay. And they said, we just want you to go downstairs and run some tests. And then that's it. I said, okay. I went downstairs, ran some tests, called Chris. He came back within 40 minutes. They said, we're going to admit you. There's something very, very wrong. Hmm. And I was like, okay. And so I'm in the hospital now, two days in. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm telling my job. I'm like, no one's telling me what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. And then they bring in this guy that is like a specialist. And he says, uh, Basically, you, we got two options. You're either going to stay here for seven weeks for us to get the healthiest baby we possibly can. So you'll live here or we'll you'll go home and you won't um, you'll have to come here every other day to check in. Oh, wow. So Either way, you're not going back to work. So let your job know you're not going back to work. And I'm like, OK, tell my job I'm out. I don't know what's going on, but I'm out. And they they take a test for my liver, I think, or something. Anyway, my protein was through the roof, which meant my, um, I might mess this up because I'm not a nurse, but it was either my kid. Yeah. My kidneys were starting to shut down already. And they were like, okay, you're now going to live here for seven weeks. Like we have to get you to 32 weeks so that you can even have a healthy baby. So you live here now. And I was like, okay. So that was a Tuesday that they told me that I was going to live there. 
So my fiance comes, he starts bringing all this stuff. My, my mentors like I'll come down on Friday night. Mind you, my baby shower was supposed to be that weekend. So they start canceling my baby shower. People are panicking. They're like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I can't even explain. I don't know what's going on. And this is, and I'm just telling you this story because this is the beginning process of one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned in my entire life is I've never spent, I spent so much time alone and scared during this time. So because we had just moved into a bigger house, my fiance had to go to work every day. Like he's still an entrepreneur, but he had to go work from somewhere with Wi-Fi every day. So he would leave every day. So I'm, my parents live four hours away. So I'm in my thoughts all the time in this process. I don't know if this child's going to live or die. No one can tell me anything. And then the goal is to get this me to live there six weeks. My mentor gets there Friday night. This is only four days in of them telling me this. My mentor gets there Friday night and says, tells my fiance to go, go home, take a shower, go get some nice rest. I'm here because he was sleeping on the couch in the hospital every night. So she's like, you know, take a night off, go home, bathe, do whatever you need to do. Like, just enjoy yourself for a night. I'm here. So me and her laying in bed. We're like ripping my baby shower off of target.com. Like we're just doing all this stuff, just chatting, having a good time. And uh, I go to sleep. She goes to sleep. I go to sleep. Um, I wake up that morning about 4 a.m. And there was like 10 people standing over me and my mentor is waking me up. And she's like, you need to wake up now. They're going to take you down to labor and delivery. And I was like, what? No. And the woman was like, you need to calm down. And I'm like, what do you mean calm? I'm, I, you woke me up. I was asleep. Like, what do you mean calm down? They're like, your blood pressure is so high. Like, are you scared? Like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I was sleeping. Nothing's wrong with me. Like, I'm fine. And they're like, you're not fine. Like, it's really, really bad. Like you could stroke out at any minute. And they're like, so if you're not freaking out, this baby's making you very, very, very ill. He has to come out today. And I'm like, okay. And I said, is he going to live? And they just said, they're literally unhooking all these cords to wheel me down to labor and delivery because I can't get up. And they're like, well, we just want you to know if it's a choice over him or you, we're going to choose you. And it was like, in that moment, I'm like, okay, prepare yourself, like prepare yourself. You just went through this whole thing and you're not going to, you don't get this child. Like you don't get to have him. And they get me down there. It's a two day process. Um, I don't know why I'm crying, <laughs> just reliving it. But um, it's a two day process. They don't want to cut me open if they don't have to. And then of course, like for it to be any weirder, like I also had this thing happen where like only one in something people happen where I didn't have contractions on the front. I had them in my back. So they also couldn't find the contractions the whole time. So I kept saying I was in so much pain and they were like, well, you're not contracting. And I'm like, well, why does this hurt so bad? And they're like, we don't know. We don't know what's wrong with you. And then literally the lady came to me. This is after two days. Now I'll tell you another part of the story that was crazy too, is that my fiance had no idea what's going on. So mind you, he's there, mm -hmm. but they're telling me now you have severe preeclampsia. So they're, they're diagnosed it now. And we don't know what the hell that is. We didn't, sorry, but I was not the person that read the baby books. Like I just wasn't, and neither was he. So he's like, okay, well, it's this thing. And he ends up telling me afterwards that he went into the bathroom while I was in labor and delivery, which I was there for two days. And there was a pamphlet thing on the wall that explained preeclampsia. And he said he was reading and it kept saying the, like how high the percentage was of death for the parent and the baby. And he said he started freaking out because he was like, he had no idea it was that serious that nobody was explaining that to him. 
that like, he was like, oh my God, that was when I realized like, this could be really bad, like really, really bad. And he said, he went into this whole thing about like, he thought he was going to be parenting on his own and all this stuff. So he's, you know, men handle things. So he's like there, but he's checked out mentally. Like he's trying to prepare himself for something. I'm trying to prepare myself for something. And uh, they can't find my contractions. Like, it's just all this stuff. I almost threw up and they, uh, the nurse comes in and she's like, okay, well, it's been too long. You keep getting sicker and sicker. So we're going to cut that baby out in about 45 minutes. And I said, okay. And she left. And I kept telling my mom, I was like, and my mom had to catch a ride down there, by the way, she doesn't have a car. So (laughs) she had to catch a ride four hours. And I'm like, my back, like it hurts so bad. And they were like, well, you know, just sit up or we'll, we'll put something underneath you. And I'm like, no, it like, it feels like somebody's breaking my back. (laughs) My mentor was like, what? And she like lifted up the sheet and then she ran out and swung the door open. And she was like, get back in here. And like the baby was halfway out. (laughs) So they run back in. So this is like this whole time I felt like I was at the number two hospital in the state of Florida, but I felt like I was like with a bunch of like people that just had no idea what was going on. So they run back in and then this is just to just to kind of show you how small this baby was. I'm pushing and the doctor says, okay, um, everybody stop what you're doing. Like I'm talking about, I got people holding my hands, holding my feet. And my doctor goes, everybody stop. And he goes, this is going to sound so stupid, but I want you to cough. And I was like, he was like, cough, deep breath, cough. Like you want to get something out of your throat. And I was like, and I did it. Girl, that baby popped out. That's how small he was. (laughs) oh wow (laughs) so I'm laughing about it now and the room was so big because it they were preparing it they knew it was gonna be a premature baby the room was so big that there was like five people lined up on the back side of the room because they you don't get to hold the baby they take it from you immediately and so there's at least 12 people in this room you know my family the doctor the NICU staff in the back so they pull him out no right before they told me to cough I said, is he going to live? And the doctor goes, it just depends on whether he comes out crying or not. And he came out. And when the doctor pulled him out, he looked like a frog. It looked like a little frog. And then his legs flopped out. And they look like little frog legs. If you were to hold a frog this way, Mm -hmm. and his legs just like swung out and nothing. And he hit the back of him and he made an, I'll never forget the sound because I was waiting for this cry and it sounded like a cat. It literally sounded like a cat. He just was like, meh, meh. that's all we heard. And then they, he said, okay, do you see him? And I said, yeah, he said, okay, he's gone. And they cut it and they wrapped him up in like two seconds, put him in a box and wheeled him away. And then, then my blood pressure skyrockets. Oh, wow. They kick everybody out. This was the scariest part of the whole thing. The whole thing was scary, but that didn't scare me at all. Like what scared me was after I had him, they're pushing everything out. I'm in the room alone with the nurse. She's got the lights off, the TV off. She took my phone from me, everything. And she's like, I just really need you to calm down. And I'm like, I'm fine. And she's like, your blood pressure is through the roof. Like it's so bad. I don't know what could happen to you in the next five minutes. And I'm like, I don't know what else to do. And she's crying. She's like, I've been a nurse for 15 years. I've never seen this before. She was giving me blood pressure meds. She was, she had the lights off. She was doing all type of stuff. And she was like trying to push everything out of me because they thought it was like infecting me. And she was like, I don't know what to do. 
And I was like, well, I need you to know what to do because I don't know what to do. Like, it's so we, I sat in a room by myself for eight hours after the birth of my premature son. And all I could do, they wouldn't even let me have my phone for four of the eight hours. Chris couldn't come see me. My mom couldn't come see me. Nobody, because they were trying to get me to like, calm down. But I was fine. I couldn't even move. They were like, you need to call, like your blood pressure is so bad. You could, you're going to stroke. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) so my son ends up being born one pound, 15 ounces. He's three months early. He's one pound, 15 ounces. So through all of this, I don't, I've never even read or heard anything about a premature child. Nothing, nothing. I know nothing. This is completely like green to us. And I'll never forget the next day um, in the new hospital room, Chris comes in and he's like, do you want to see a picture of him? And I'm like, I haven't seen him yet. Cause it's been 24 hours. I haven't even seen him yet. And they're like, I'm like, yes. And he's like, okay, I just don't want you to freak out. And he's like, they took his mask off for a second to put a new one on. And I snapped a picture of him and I'm like, okay. And he's like, just don't freak out. And I'm like, all right. And he shows me a picture of him. And I can be honest about it now, but I just had this feeling of like, it was just so weird. Like I wasn't in love. I was like, I just immediately, I saw the picture and I was distraught. And I, I just immediately prepared myself for the feeling of like, don't get used to him because you don't know what's going to happen. And if he does make it, you're going to, you're going to have a very, he's going to have a very different life than most people because the picture I saw his nose wasn't even completely developed. He just had two holes in his nose and his mouth was like a line. Like he, like it, and it was like there was no filling like he looked like a skull with skin and like there were like eyes but they were black they weren't even like eyes yet so it's like real real honesty he looked like an alien and so I was just like okay I'm prepared for this you know and they wake me up in the middle of the night and they're like well do you want to see him and they disconnected all my cords because for like three days I wasn't allowed to walk because they had me on so much I don't remember what it was, something, some type of drug or something. And they um, took me to him and he's in a box. And I remember I was just staring at him, you know, and they've got him like boarded up to where he can't move, where he's like, you know, and there's holes where you can stick your hand in there and touch them. Mm -hmm. And I opened it and I said, can I touch him? And the lady goes, yeah, but you have to be really careful. Don't rub him hard. He's so little that you could rub his skin off. And I was like, what? So yeah, that was a journey. So I got out 10 days later and went home with no baby. And for the first 30 days, they couldn't tell us whether or not he was even going to survive. So they treated like a daycare. So weirdest thing ever. A doctor calls you, a nurse calls you every morning. And then a doctor calls you once a week. And so you get the nurses like updates every day, like a report every morning around 9 a.m. And then the doctor calls you once a week and says, hey, like, here's our week in progress, whatever, whatever. And God bless these people. Like, I have a new profound obsession with, like, NICU nurses because I can't believe the work that they do. And they just give you these updates. And every, like, the, the words and the things that they say, like, they had this term that they used to use all the time that meant that his heart, heart stopped beating. They would say, like, he had a little hiccup last night from, like, for 12 seconds, which meant his heart stopped beating. 
So it was like, there was just so like the, the doctor would call me and say like every week it was something else. They'd call me and say, you know, Hey, he's, he's doing great. He lost a few pounds. We did discover that he has a brain bleed, but it, it's just a level two. It's not a level four. Like it was like, it just would get worse and worse and worse. Like we found out in the first three weeks that he had a hole in his heart, the size of a quarter, well, the size of a, it was like a quarter of his heart. Mm -hmm. And then it was growing as his heart was getting bigger and he had a brain bleed. He had an, that it just kept going and going and going. He had like four hernias. It was just all this stuff. And this is, that's not even the most profound part. This is where the breakthrough happens. So four weeks in, no, it was like three. It was like middle of September. Three weeks in, my fiance books a trip to go to Michigan for a client on a Thursday. Hurricane Irma was down south, east, supposed to hit Miami and go up the coast, pretty far away from Tampa to where we were just going to get some rain. They had been preparing us because Cam's three, week in, three weeks into the NICU. We don't even know when the hell he could ever get out. And they're preparing us that, hey, just in case this hurricane comes like and, hit, and hits us pretty good, here's the three things that could happen. And they kept, because it was a hurricane five. So they kept warning us that he could, if at the last minute, all the generators went out, worst case scenario, he would have to be flown via helicopter to another city and we were not able to come. So we had to prepare ourselves for that. Oh, wow. Now my fiance goes out of town. So I decide I'm going to stay the night there during the hurricane because Everyone was like, hospital is the safest place to be. They have generators. They've got all this stuff. And you know, your baby's stay safe. Just go stay at the hospital. I'm like, great. So I'm packing my bag. My fiance's out of town and I start getting really dizzy. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And I'm like, well, maybe I'm just like overworking myself because I went back to work also. Mm -hmm. So I went back to work because I wanted to save my time with my son. I wanted like, when he gets out, I want to be with him. So I'm just going back to work. So mind you, I'm back at work nine to five and then driving to the NICU and staying from the NICU till six to like 1am and then going home every night, every single night. That was my life for like three and a half months. So I'm dizzy and I'm like, well, I'm, I guess I'll just lay down and take a nap. So I lay down in the evening. I wake up four hours later, sweating. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I think I have a fever or something. So I go get the thermometer and my fever is 104. And I'm like, what the fuck? What is going on? So I call Chris and he's like, call your doctor. And I'm like, okay. So I call my doctor and they're like, well, you just had a baby. You need to call your OB, OBGYN. So I call my doctor, my OB. And she's like, tell me how you feel. And I'm explaining to her, she's like, tell me your fever. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, wait 30 minutes, take your temperature again, call me back. And it goes up and I call her back and she's like, get in here now. I'm like, well, I was on my way there anyway. She's like, come now. So I literally drive myself there. I can barely see, like, I'm like about to pass out. I get there. They put me on the thing. I pass out. I passed out. I woke up four hours later to them telling me that night, it was like dark outside and everything to them telling me that I had mastitis, which is like an infection of the breasts that you get when your milk like um, retracts into the ducts and it gives you an infection. And she's like, well, we're just going to give you some antibiotics and then you can go home. And I said, that's fine because I was going to stay. It's in the same hospital, by the way. So I'm like, I was just going to stay downstairs with my son. And they're like, okay, that's fine. We're going to give you some antibiotics. So they go to call it in. They come back and be like, oh, the pharmacy's already closed for the hurricane. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, so do you just want to go home and I'll call someone else and you might can go pick it up first thing in the morning? I'm like, sure. So she's walking me to the checkout and she's like, you are not okay, are you? And I'm like, I mean, 
think I'm okay. I just feel like I can't walk. And they're like, okay, we're going to admit you tonight because I don't know if that's all that's wrong with you, but something's clearly wrong with you. So they admit me. And that night or that morning, they tell me, oh my God, we're so glad we admit you. You had become, and sorry for the nurses on here if I say this wrong, sepsis, which would mean that the infection had already gone into my bloodstream. Because they started giving me all these, I don't know what you call these, but it was to get rid of my fever and my fever would not break. And so they took a blood test and they were like, it's all like it has already, the infection's already in your blood. So they were like, you'll be here for a while. And so now I'm fighting this infection. I'm not even there yet. I'm fighting this infection. No one can come see me because there's a hurricane because now the hurricane has turned and it's coming directly for Tampa. We're like nine hours away from the hurricane coming. I'm in the hospital by myself with mastitis that has now gotten into my bloodstream. And then the, the nurse comes in on the second day I'm there as the hurricane's coming. Like it's like five hours away now because my mom's calling me every 30 minutes like, I can't believe you're there by yourself, blah, 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 blah. The nurse comes in and goes, uh, there's a call for you that's about to come in and it's an emergency, you need to pick it up. And I pick it up and it's the NICU. And the lady, the, his nurse is like, I thought you were coming to stay. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, and then I called around and they said that you're in the hospital too. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, cause I've been calling your phone. It's going straight to voicemail. I'm like, yeah, I don't have any service in here. And she's like, okay, well I need a yes or no answer right now. Your son has a severe infection and he needs a blood transfusion right now because he doesn't even have enough white blood cells to fight it. And I was like, what? And she's like, you just have to say yes. I just need your consent. And I'm like, I don't even, can you use my blood? She's like, you guys don't have the same blood type. We've already checked. It has to be done right now because he's already like his temp is dropping. He's already fighting it. His little body can't take it. Like we need to do the blood transfusion right now. Yes or no. And I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even get out of bed because they've got me hooked up to so much stuff. And so I'm like, sure. So I'm like texting my fiance. He can't come home because they won't take any flights into Tampa. Nobody can come see me. And now my son's getting a blood transfusion. Nobody knows. Like, I was like, what could happen? And they were like, this could go terribly wrong and he could get worse or he could get really, he could get a lot better. We don't know. We don't know if his body will like reject the blood. I will never forget sitting in the hospital that night. That night was what changed me forever because I sat in there. I couldn't move. I couldn't call anybody. Nobody could come see me. I couldn't save my son. And it was almost like, like you see in the movies where like somebody's in jail or they're like strapped to something and they can't save anyone. They can't mm-hmm. step in for anyone. They can't be there for anyone. Like I felt so helpless. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of me feeling helpless, it was so crazy, but it was like, I just found this, like, it was like, I laid there in my pity for a little bit. And then I just found this like strength where I was like, okay nobody's ever going to do these things for you. If all these people aren't here in your life one day, you have to do this on your own. Like, how do you find the strength within to like carry this? Because you can't play victim right now. Nobody can step in for you. Like you have to do this. You have to do this. Nobody else can do this for you. Nobody can make these decisions. Nobody can be strong for you. You have to be strong for yourself and your son. Like that's it. You got to find it. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, it was, it was just such a crazy experience because I just remember having all these memories. It made me think about all the times that I had relied on other people for their energy and how many times that 
I was able to kind of muster up the courage for myself and how many other times that I should have, but I didn't like, I was just like, this is it. Like, this is, this is it. And then I remembered when I was walking through the airport and I asked God and I said, God, if you're going to reveal yourself to me, do it. And it was so clear. It was so, it was like crystal clear in that moment. I was like, oh, I asked God to reveal himself to me. And this is it. This is it. This is how he did it. He did it through my son. And when they say that you have to have faith, like this is the faith. This is it. Like he's saying, I'm here. I'm here now. Don't, don't question me when I'm in your face. Don't. I'm here. I'm going to take care of this whole thing. But don't you dare question me when you asked me to show myself to you. And I was like, oh, it's good. Like, God's got this. Like, this is what I asked for. I prayed for this. And he's here now. You just got to chill out. Like, let him do his thing. And it was so crazy because to be in such a chaotic moment, I remember going to sleep with so much ease. Like I remember the hurricane was banging the windows. The windows were like vibrating. And I just remember looking outside and it was like black and thunder and lightning. And I was just like, okay, he's here. Like, this is it. And I went to sleep with so much ease and I woke up the next morning and the phone rang and she was like, hey, we're just going to give you an update. Like he seems to be taking this really well. He slept so well last night. Like He's, he's very exhausted because we gave him the blood transfusion and that stirred him up quite a bit, but like, he seems to be doing really well. We're very excited about his progress and where he's going. And every day after that, his health shot up. Like it like shot up. Wow. Like he was like every, cause every day before that, it was like really slow. Like they were like, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. He got that blood transfusion. And like, it was like, after that, it was just every day he got better and better and better and better. So I'm in the hospital for five days after that. They let me out. They're like, that was so crazy. Like we had to, you know, fight that infection for you or whatever. They let me out. Hurricanes passed. My son's getting better. He ends up spending 82 days in there. So 82 days, three three months and some change or two months and some change. And then he comes home to us or a couple of weeks before he came home to us. I just remember looking at Chris and I said, you know, God saved our son. And he was like, I know. And I said, I asked him to reveal himself to me. And he did. And I said, so now I got to promise him two things. And he was like, what's that? And I said, one, if my son was willing to come into this world that resilient, like he entered the world that resilient, I'm going to spend the rest of my life showing him why. And if, if he can survive that, I'm not going to play small another day when he gets home. Like, I just won't. I refuse. Like, if he can play like that, like, if he can show up in the world like that, I I know he's got purpose. Then I won't play small about mine. Wow. And he came home, and I've never experienced that much bliss in my life. He came home, and within two weeks, I applied to do a TEDx. I started my podcast. Like, I did all of that while he was home with me. And it was just because I had this, like it, that is my broken and beautiful story. Like it was like the last five, four months of August of 2017. God chewed the universe chewed me up and spit me out. And then I felt like come December was just like, well, what are you going to do about it? 
And I was like, I'm going to live life on some different freaking terms. Mm. I'm going to do things different. Like I started 2017 feeling empty and having no purpose. I ended 2017 feeling like I had a freaking mission. I had a freaking mission. God saved my son and said, don't play with me about the mission and the vision and the purpose that I've given you. So now that I've showed you what I'm capable of, go make some freaking moves. Go make some moves. And listen, if there's one thing I've taken seriously since then, and that was almost four years ago, it is my purpose. Mm. I don't play about it. I know my gifts. I know my talents. And I don't ever stop using them. I just don't. And my son is a walking testimony. You know, like just the icing on the cake was when we took him home. And I was just like, wow. Like I knew, I just, I knew like everything in my being knew that that was what I asked God for. Like, like, like him in the car seat, I was just looking at him and I was like, okay, God, I get it. Like I get it. And when we left, they said the day we left, he was in the car seat. They said, you know, here's all the paperwork. You have to hold on to these files. You know, don't, you know, just be careful. There's a lot of things going on here. He still has a hole in his heart. He's, we don't know about his vision. He has to go to his vision appointment in three days. You know, he, we have no, we have zero insight into whether or not he can see. He might be blind. He'll probably have vision issues for the rest of his life. You know, the brain bleeds still there. Be very careful with him. He's going to have to see a neurologist, a cardiologist, and an eye doctor for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Girl, bye. Girl, bye. The second eye appointment I took that boy to, the guy was like, he's got 20-20 vision. He's fine. Yeah. And then I took him to the neurologist three times, and they were like, it disappeared. Like, the brain bleed disappeared. Like, that happens sometimes. They just grow out of them. And then the cardiologist... We took him three, we took him every six months. I took him at six months, one year and a year and a half. And at a year and a half, they said, it's getting smaller, but it's still too big, the hole in his heart. So at two, we'll check on him. If by two, it doesn't close, we're gonna have to go in and surgically close it because it's gonna become a problem. And I was like, okay. And we brought him in at one and a half or we brought him in at two and they were like, we can't find it. It's gone. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Every time I look at him, I'm like, he's such a walking testimony. And like, when I look at him, I'm like, mama, you got so much to do. Like, <laughs> you have so much to do. I so. mean, it's all oh, that is so amazing. And now that I know when I see him and that personality <laughs> he has, and it's just like, he's so adorable. It's just, I can't take it. He has so but, much personality. And I always say, does. I'm like, that's why God made me wait. Like he made me wait. He had, he needed to prepare me for three months for all of that personality. I yes. know why I had to wait on you now. Oh my goodness. He is just, yes, he is a walking testimony. <laughs> he is. Oh my gosh. Jessica, that is an amazing story. I did not know all of that. And I'm, I'm fighting back tears right now. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. I don't even know what to say right now. It's amazing. And I just hope it encourages people to share because when I started my podcast, I really didn't know what the hell I was talking about. All I did was I wanted, I knew that that 2017 year and being feeling stuck and stranded and not knowing what my purpose was meant something. So that gave me the interface podcast, but like I was all over the place in the beginning of my podcast. So what I was talking about, 
And I shared a lot about Cam's journey on there. And I, to this day, have like forever followers that are like, I just found you because, you know, my son had a heart defect or my son had this or my child had that. And I caught one of your premature episodes about your son. And then I've been a forever listener ever since. Like, I remember thinking like, nobody wants to hear that pity party. You know, nobody wants to hear like other people's children don't make it. So nobody wants to hear that, you know, and that still subsides how many people needed to hear that. Yes. Because now I've had mothers come to me. I had a girl come to me two months ago and said she was pregnant and she went into the doctor's office for a checkup and she was having all these issues. And she said she felt so called to like stay on the doctor because of everything that she had heard on my podcast. She just felt like she knew her body. And she was like, based on what happened to you, I just knew I had to be like adamant. She said the doctor tried to send her home and she was adamant with them about how she was feeling. She made them find another doctor. They made her have the baby that day. Oh, wow. And she was far along. She was like eight and a half months pregnant. But she said that they made, she made them give her another doctor because she was like, I'm feeling this way. I've heard about this before. Is this what I have? And they were like, you do. You need to give birth to this baby today. Mm. So like the people that have heard that story and I've connected with or that it's helped with their birth or like, you know, I had a mom, a friend that had twins that she was like, as soon as it started happening, I knew what it was. I knew it because I had heard your story so many times. Wow. So just share. Yes. Share. I keep thinking right now, like the name of your podcast is the stranded phase and you talk about feeling stranded or stuck, but you were literally stranded in a hospital during a hurricane. You sick, your baby sick, like literally. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing I could do. And I just remember the nurse kept coming in there and checking on me like I was dying. Like she was like, not literally that I was so sick, but she just knew that I was going through it mentally. She just kept coming in there and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you want to talk? I'm like, no. You know, she just kept checking on me because she was just like, I feel so bad. I know this mama wants to like rip everything and run and she can't. I was stuck. I was so stuck. And that was just one of the situations where I had to really let go and let God. Like I literally had to let go and let God. You asked him to reveal himself. I did. I know I did. I think about it all the time. Because I just, I vividly remember that walk through the airport and I'm like, you will get what you, you get what you pray for when you least expect it. And it will not look like what you thought it should look like. Exactly. Exactly. But don't be afraid to ask just because of that. Right. No, because it all worked out. It all worked out. And it's just, just the effects of him in that situation. I, I can't even tell you all the things that were birthed that probably never, like I would have never had a podcast if it wasn't for Cameron. I would have never been inspired to quit my corporate job that has now been almost two years. I would have never been inspired to quit my corporate job if it wasn't for my son. Our, my relationship probably wouldn't be where it was if it wasn't for my son, just the way that we built our bond through the, that time. Like never, just so many things were birthed of that moment. Oh my goodness. Such a powerful story. I don't even have any questions. None. <laughs> it's just, it's a powerful story. But if you, anyone out there has any questions or would like to connect with Jessica, Jessica, tell them how they can find you. So you can stalk me on Instagram. That's where I'm the most prevalent. I hang out there a lot. So at Jessica Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y underscore. Yeah, Facebook Jessica Hurley. And then you can check out my um 
my agency website, which is my my full-time gig. This is what I do most of the time, is uh, instapodcast.com. And then please, 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 please check out my podcast, The Stranded Phase. Mm-hmm. There are 200 plus episodes in. I love all my people as much as I can. And I think that's really where I give most of my energy is the podcast. And um, and I, I definitely would say we're changing lives over there. So sure. if you're if you're feeling stuck and you're waking up with that empty feeling, this is definitely something you need to go check out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the platforms. Yes. So before I head out, I have another quote because this was just so fitting. You know, I'm a worse person. So I you love are. And you're going to get at least one quote, at least one. You might get two, you might get three, but you're going to get one. This time you're going to get two. And this one is from Anne-Marie Molina. And it says, you feel unsettled because you know you are meant for more. Oh, I'm getting so good at finding these things. <laughs> yes. These things are like, ooh. And I had this picked out before I even spoke to you, before you even, I just picked it out right before, both of the quotes, I just picked them out right before we started. So I had what? no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> oh my oh. God. It, and it happens like that every time I pick out a quote and it just ends up so fitting. Wow. That's so crazy. So you're, you are definitely doing something that you're supposed to be doing for other people. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. It, and it, don't you dare it. let anybody's opinions sway you to believe otherwise. I won't. <laughs> promise. I promise. I promise. Promise. I won't. All right, my beautiful people, that is it. I love you all, and I will talk to you all next time. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.